0: Rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Rumors of Grace. We've got a very, very special guest on the phone with me today is William Paul Young, the author of The Shack. If you haven't read it, you need to. Also, the movie The Shack, you need to see it. Uh, That book itself and his subsequent books, uh, one we're going to talk about specifically today, has been very influential in my life and I know in the lives of many of my friends and people around me. So uh, we're going to go down that rabbit hole a little bit today. But just a little background, uh, Paul Young was brought up... uh, to as the child of missionaries in uh, Papua, New Guinea, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. He's got an interesting background if you haven't heard his history. When he wrote the book, The Shack, he wrote it uh, for his kids, for his family as a gift. To His wife urged him, write a book about what you believe and leave it as a legacy for your kids. He thought it would just be something that that he would write down and share as a Christmas gift and print off a few copies uh make a long story short if you don't know the story the shack has gone on to sell over 20 million copies making it one of the best-selling books of all times that was in 2007 and then in 2017 uh, a major release film in theaters was made with with several stars and it was the adaptation of the shack into a movie so i am honored uh paul welcome to the podcast
1: Thanks, Bob. Honored to be with you.
0: Well, uh, where are you calling from? Are you still? Do you still live in Canada? No,
1: I live just north of Portland, Oregon, right across the Columbia River into Washington State. Little, little rural outside of Vancouver, Washington, called Brush Prairie. Mm. So I was born. I was born in Grand Prairie, Alberta. I think I'm going to die in Brush Prairie, Washington. So, but uh, uh, I'm 25 minutes from the Portland airport. So uh, we lived in Oregon for a lot of years.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, for those of the the people, listeners that that don't know, can you give us a brief background um, of your upbringing? Because I think that sets the stage for not only your life and experience, the writing of The Shack, but a lot of the things we're going to talk about today. Um, Let's start with where were you born and what were your early formative years like?
1: So, um, at a year old, born in northern Alberta, um, way north and west of Edmonton, which is, you know, that's where God's frozen people live. <laughs> and uh, so, at a year old, my parents, I was the firstborn. My, my parents and I moved to the highlands of the interior of what was then Netherlands, New Guinea, which was a Dutch colony that uh, was eventually taken over by the Indonesians, annexed, and became Irian Jaya, and then. Um, West Papua. So, so I grew up as a missionary kid in the, in the, in a tribal culture. We were the first ones in. My parents were pioneer missionaries. My mom was a medical missionary. My dad was just a pioneer hunter-trapper kind of guy. And um, and then um, uh, six was sent to boarding school uh, on the coast. Came back to Canada at ten. Um, my dad became an itinerant pastor. I went to 13 schools before I graduated high school. Mm. And so that's sort of the overlay and, and, and the big picture. Um, but the storyline behind it that eventually led to the writing of The Shack was that I'm a firstborn missionary kid, preacher's kid. I grew up in, uh, my people are modern evangelical, fundamentalist, holiness people. And uh, very performance oriented, very much driven by their theology, and which is not all bad, but um, it it can be difficult. And um, uh, a distant relationship to God the Father had some Trinitarian roots and all that. My childhood was was both wondrous and horrifying. You know, Mm -hmm. there was uh, there was a, a sense of belonging. This was back in when a lot of missions the sense was that you had to be willing to sacrifice your child on the altar of the mission in order to, you know, get the work of God done so that people's blood wouldn't be on your hands. There was all that kind of fear-based performance oriented motivation. And and a lot of my generation of missionary kids were slaughtered on the altar of the gospel. And, um, and so, you know, for me, uh, one difficulty was one of my great sadnesses was a very harsh relationship with my dad, who he just didn't have a chip for being a dad. He that had been broken in him as a child before I ever showed up, and but I didn't know that as a child. You just you 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 think that your parents must be right, and and so my dad was a very um, uh, terrifying man. He he was a, a, a Discipline was um, cruel and um and so that was you know I just didn't want anything to do with him and then um, in the culture, uh sexual abuse started for me before I was five years old, and then, when I was sent to boarding school at six, sexual abuse was endemic in the boarding school. the big boys would come at night molest the little boys and and that will tear apart the house on the inside that's That's my metaphor of the shack that started, you know, long time ago, that there are people who help you build your house on the inside, uh, the soul, the the heart of a human being. And and I'm grateful to hear when people were raised within a frame of reference that, that you know, was supportive, was encouraging, was um, really allowed for a, a beautiful house on the inside that you'd want to invite people. But there are a lot of us that we didn't, we didn't get that help. And, uh, so our house on the inside becomes a shack mm. and a place we store our addictions, hide our secrets. And, and, um, that's a, it's a place of shame. We never want to invite anybody in there because, you know, we, we think it's totally depraved and we think that it's, uh, just desperately wicked and all those kinds of languages that we pick up from our theology. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and so, you know, I became a performer. That's how I survived. My survival skills were all about creating a facade, not to try to be duplicitous, but to try to create something that was acceptable to God and would win the approval and the affection of, of people, even though shame constantly whispered, you're just fooling them. That's all. You're just fooling them. Mm. And, um, and I drug my survival skills and mechanisms into my marriage and then blew that up and and then, um, which is a a big part of my story, Mackenzie's weekend in the shack represents an eleven year deconstruction, rebuilding journey, and uh, an eleven year journey to reconcile completely with Kim, who I'm married to, mm. and now for over forty years. But uh, she and I are now the best we've ever been. But
0: that's a that's an amazing I mean, story. It, story and it's um... crazy. It is an
1: amazing story of desperation and grace, because mm-hmm. when, when I blew up the world, the choice was very clear. I either had to face Kim and face all my stuff or kill myself. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and I almost did, uh, in that first part of that 11 years, mm-hmm. I almost, I almost did kill myself because it was just so horrendously hard that, you know, facing yourself and and dealing with exposure and all of that. Um, for those of you who don't know, you know, I, I was caught by Kim in a three month affair with one of her best friends and it just absolutely obliterated everything she thought was real. Plus, it, it destroyed the facade, thankfully. But, um, you know, it, the unexposed is the unhealed. And, um, and I, I, uh was at a real crossroads. It was either exposure or I'm um, not gonna take the chance of ever hurting anybody like this again. Mm-hmm. So that started my my uh I didn't start the deconstruction. I've been on that journey since I was a kid trying to figure out how who God was and how mm-hmm. I fit into the world and who I was and but uh I'd put my hope and faith into a facade, into an avatar. Yes. And then when that was all dismantled, it was like okay, I need to do the work of trying trying to change. Is there a way to actually change and find out what about me is actually real? Mm-hmm. And And then it was at the end of those 11 years, in fact, the year I turned 50, that I finally felt healthy enough to do this little thing Kim had been encouraging me to do, which was to write a gift for our kids that would put in one place how I think. And so, mm-hmm on the, mostly on the train to one of my three jobs, I wrote The Shack and got it done for Christmas, made 15 copies at Office Depot that did everything I ever wanted that book to do. I had no intention to become a published author that was not on the bucket list. Or And um, and then in God's great, kind sense of humor, you know, this 15 copies did everything I wanted it. And then it's like God says, "Well, you know, let's let's play with this and see what happens." And it becomes this unbelievable phenomenon that I'm. Uh, it's as surreal to me today as it was when it all started. <laughs> I so. bet, I bet it is.
0: Well, I so know— there's your,
1: yeah. your bird's eye.
0: Yeah, thank you for doing that. That that's that's beautiful. You encapsulated that perfectly. And thank you for for writing the shack and um, and just you know being available to that unfolding of what has happened to it. I know it's in impacted um a lot of people and it's got people to to think and st- feel about god the creator the universe whatever you want to call it in a very unique and different way um for many of us it was be- it was very intuitive and it rang true for many people i'm sure um have <laughs> have had a lot of problem with it but yeah, uh,
1: especially if, especially for those who haven't read it
0: yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. they are
1: mostly my own people
0: <laughs> yeah, I can I come from a very similar background and, and usually when I mention your book and someone says something derogatory, I ask them if they've read it and nine times out of ten they haven't. So <laughs> Correct.
1: Yeah. I know. But that's my people. You know, we we're experts in things that we
0: know nothing about. So Yeah, exactly. It's and so what part of the facade Exactly. Where I wanted to go with this conversation was not so much to focus on the shack, but um to to dig a little bit deeper to say, okay, behind the shack is somebody who obviously has done a lot of thought and work and connection with themselves, with others, with the divine. And out of that um came the shack, but also you wrote a book a couple of years ago um called the lies that we twenty eight lies we believe about God lies we believe about God I believe is the is the exact title. It. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that book, you had twenty eight lies. And I've got to say, um, when I got that book, it was it was the first time that um, I had found someone that put words to what I intuitively know uh, knew was going on underneath my skin and in my heart, my mind being brought up in an evangelical kind of subculture as well. Um, and so what I'd like to do for for the rest of this podcast, we don't have time to go over each one. Uh, however, there are several that that impacted me and I know impacted other people that I'd like to for you to just kind of maybe riff for a few minutes on each one. So the first one uh, that I want to talk about is it comes up with in the order of number two on your list, which is, God is good, I am not.
1: Ooh, <laughs> so, I mean, we could literally spend the entire time on that one by itself, because that is a question of ontology, mm. and ontology is, a, is one of those big words that is, is quite simple. It's just uh, two Greek words, ontos and logos, and um and we're familiar with you know like theology is theos and logos so it's words about or study of god is theology and then anthropology would be study of humanity or human um anthropos being the, the generic word for a human being um ontology is the study of being b-e-i-n-g hmm. and um and so it's like, there's a, there's a phrase that I got from Baxter Kruger, theologian friend who, um, I don't know, eight years ago off, offhandedly, he said this when he was speaking and I've camped on it ever since. And, uh, in fact, one of the book projects I'm working on right now is exactly expanding this particular conversation. So you've stepped right into something that is really <laughs> living and good, active and good, dynamic good. for me at the moment. And, uh, And he said this, wholeness, and that's uh, wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S, wholeness, which is the same root for my people's word or the traditional Christian word holiness. Mm -hmm. And um, but we, you know, we sort of reinterpreted the word holiness as antiseptic, you know, perfectionism or purity or something rather than uh, relational integrity. And so wholeness, And this is how Baxter defined it. And he said, wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. Mm. And that's a fantastic phrase. The way of your being is the choices you make, how you live your life. um, uh, And and wholeness is when there's integrity between the way of your being and the truth of your being. Mm. So uh, one of the fundamental questions is, what's the truth of your being? And, um, and the, the, the lie that's in lies is that uh, underlying it for a lot of us who come from religion of one sort or another, but particularly in, in my case, from traditional evangelical fundamentalism is that, yes, God is good. That is the truth of God's being, that God is good. But I'm, uh, and I, I gave it an acronym, P.O.S.T., which is piece of shit theology, <laughs> you know, that, <clears throat> that the truth of my being is that I'm just a piece of garbage. I'm just, you know, um, evolutionary scum, if you want to look at it as a materialistic point of view. But, but it's like the truth of my being is that I'm worthless, I'm depraved, I'm wicked, all of that language. And when you're dealing with ontology, what you're trying to determine is what is true about you that is true about you that is true about you that is true about you. That is, that circumstance cannot change. It can cover it up. Um, Abuse can cover it up, but underlying it is something true. Well, for those of us who grew up with a very low view of ourselves and a very low view of humanity and shame became our dominant motivator, the whisper of accusation is constantly you're a piece of garbage you're a piece of crap you're worthless you're not enough and we live in a world where shame dominates you know the, the, the you look in a mirror and you see every reason why you're not enough mm-hmm. and 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 you add that to your theology it's one thing for a sexual abuse to whisper and say see your value is how you get used that's your value you know you can exchange parts of your body for, for you know, um, belonging or something, but it is proof, and, and look at your behavior. You know, every time you disappoint people or fail to live up to their expectations or actually hurt them or betray someone or lie, the whisper is, see, you are a piece of garbage. That's mm. the truth about you, and then, you're supposed to now come into this religious relationship with God and you're supposed to now present <clears throat> somebody different <clears throat> than the truth of your being. If the truth of your being is that you're a piece of garbage, then how do you get the way of your being to do anything else but match it? Mm. And and it's like, no, if you, it, guess what? If you think you're a piece of shit, you're going to, you're going to act like one eventually. Yeah. Or, or you're, you're gonna let people treat you like one. And, um, or you're gonna continually think of yourself as one. And you're gonna go, at some point, you're gonna run out of all the energy to try to perform some perfectionist behavioral righteousness. And you're gonna say, I, I can't do this. What do you expect? All I am is a piece of garbage. How, why do you think that I can act you know, different than that? Mm. So we pray and we, we beg God to change us, or at least help us, you know, discipline our behavior so that we're acceptable so we don't go to hell, or, you know, whatever the fear is that we have in our life that drives us.
0: Or we develop, and, a, the- or we develop a theology or, or accept a theology that says— Yes, you are depraved and fallen uh but uh you can be made whole and righteous and clear as a driven snow because Jesus' blood covers you and therefore if it, there's anything good in you it comes from Christ, but it doesn't right. really, really change. It's not you.
1: because you're good, it's because he's good. Right. And 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 we call that in theology imputed righteousness. That is that that yes, you're a piece of garbage, but Jesus will cover you up with his robe of righteousness so that when God the Father, who really doesn't like shit, that that God the Father, when he looks at you, he doesn't really see you, he sees Jesus. And and then Jesus can sneak you into heaven. And then, you know, God the Father will go like, could you smell that? It smells like crap, you know. And Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is spraying his little... Canister of atonement and and reconciliation and redemption and he's like no 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 really really no it's all good and it's it's like what kind of a silly game is this not just silly devastating yes devastating and and here it is as a person thinks in their heart so becomes the way of their being that's what that verse is as a person thinks in their heart so are they not what are you ontologically are you a piece of crap or a piece of, you know, evolutionary scum trying to climb out of the slime and make something of yourself? Is that what you are? Is that the truth of your being? Or is it something else? And I grew up with that mentality that the truth of my being was that I was worthless and totally depraved and all of that. And to find out that that was a lie changed everything. You know, to find out that the truth of my being is that I, that I am made in the image and likeness of God. Mm-hmm. That is, that I am a child of God. Mm-hmm. And this is true for every single person on the planet. And Correct. for those of my people who, who object to that, they, they haven't read Acts 17, and they haven't read, you know, the Apostle Paul. And um, every single person is a child of God. That means your, your family of origin, your True DNA originates in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the character and nature of God. And and you may say, well, uh, I don't believe in the Trinity stuff or the, the God stuff. That's fine. But you do believe in something that is mm-hmm. transcendent, like mm-hmm. love. Love that is other-centered in self-giving, the kind of love where a parent will sacrifice their self for their child. And it makes no rational sense if you were just a materialist, But but... We believe in some sense of good or some sense of that kindness, that that truthfulness is something bigger and better than than deceit and deception. Right. And um, so uh, if we believe in transcendent um, reality, like love or divine, the divine, then we're made in that image and likeness, which means that at the core of my being is, is not depravity, is not. Brokenness it is kindness and goodness uh, mm-hmm. that every everything that God is like I am actually like mm-hmm. you know and um and so uh, the example that I like to use is very it's is it's a very real world example and that is you know partly because of mm, my history and and hiding and and i i was terrified of relationships that got past the surface, you know? And so, so um, I, by the time I was 12 years old, after we'd moved back to Canada and I started moving around and didn't belong anywhere, was trying to fit in and all that. I was introduced to pornography and it, it became, I became an absolute uh enslaved addict to it. And, mm-hmm. and it, part of it was, it was, it was the only way to feel a connection to a to the imagination of a relationship because i couldn't take the risk of any kind of real one and um and i i say it's like bad theology right the imagination of a relationship without the risk of a real one mm. and uh and but i i was enslaved by it and 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 i did everything i hated it i mean i knew what a disaster it was and i i knew that it fed the, the trafficking industry. And I knew that it was a degre- degradation, degradation of humanity, especially women, in, in, in my case. And, um, and I knew all of that. And, and I was still, back in the day, I was terrified of going to hell. So, but that, that wasn't a strong enough motivator to destroy the addiction. Mm. And self-discipline couldn't do it. Because self-discipline is something that works from the outside in. See, when you when you don't think you have any capacity on the inside uh, that is true and real and good and right and beautiful, then you will resort to external kinds of behavioral modification to try to get um, something that will gain control over the things that are are devastating in your life. So, so uh, you know whether it's accountability group or and 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 you need community. I get that. I I never went the accountability group path because. I couldn't take the risk of being exposed as a a fake, you know, as somebody who wasn't perfect. And uh, because I depended on perfectionism to to create the imagination of acceptability and um, hard taskmaster, by the way, you have to keep moving because people keep finding out you're not all that, which you Mm. claim to be. And, um, but I haven't had an issue with porn now in over almost 30 years, Uh, Mm. but I did drag it into my marriage, but kept it hidden. And um, and I and I succeeded a lot of the time in keeping it, you know, at bay through through sheer willpower and self, you know, discipline and all that. But um, it would eventually leak out. I'd get tired. I'd get feeling worthless. I'd whatever. And I'd feed right back into it. Um, but I haven't had an issue for almost 30 years. And, and the question is why? What changed? And what changed was my realization from the inside that I'm good, that I am pure of heart Mm. and that I am self-controlled. See, self-control comes from the inside out. Self-discipline comes from the outside in. And, And I began to realize that there was this immortal diamond, to use Richard Rohr's language. There was this, this person who is made in the image and likeness of God, that is, that's is—that's truer about me than the sexual abuse. That's truer mm-hmm. about me than my addiction to porn. That's truer about me than than my relationship with my dad. It's truer about me than my failures, you know, or my successes. Um, however, those are defined. And And once I began to realize and began to agree with the truth of my being my ontology mm. being made in the image and likeness of God, it destroyed my addiction. Mm. Not instantly, but it didn't take that long. And, uh, and, and, it, and going back to what Baxter said, wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. Mm. If the truth of my being is that I'm pure of heart, guess what? The way of my being will naturally match it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the conflict, the religious behavioral modification conflict is when you think the truth of your being is something horrid, and you're trying to get the way of your being to be contrary to it. So you're automatically a fake right from the get-go. And the whisper of shame will always find a place to make an accusation. Mm. And um, so there's a a lot to unpack inside that one lie.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, let's go on to, to another one then. Number uh, six on your list, uh, which I have quoted this time and time again, even on this podcast, but I'm going to let you unpack it. And that is the lie that is that says God wants to use me. Ooh, see,
1: I'm a grandfather. I have 12 grandkids and uh, they're all 12 years old and under. Um, and Can you imagine me saying to my child or to my grandchild, boy, I can't wait for you to grow up so that you can be a tool that I can use. (laughs) And we have such an objective, constructed imagination of God that we can put that kind of language into God's mouth, that we can say, oh, God wants to use you. And it becomes fuel for the institutional religious system you know, that traffics in human souls. And, and it, it becomes a way to try to get people to give their, their blood, sweat and tears to, to a thing, yes, um, a religious system of one sort or another, but it's completely non-relational. And, and it's like, no, 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 this is not about the divine wanting to use you as if you were, and, and, and we make it sound so good, you know, I just, I want to be a vessel and all that, as if you don't matter, right? Mm -hmm. As if, as if who you are is is really need. You need to become selfless. Mm -hmm. And there are certain religious persuasions that are trying to say that that's the goal of this is the annihilation of the self. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's true, then love can't exist. As soon as you annihilate the self, there is no love, right? Because Real love is self-giving, not selfless. Mm. And, and, and I understand that when people say selfless, a lot of times they're just meaning that they're, they're willing to lay down their own rights or their own particular agenda in a given situation, and that's quote-unquote selfless. But it's actually not, because the chooser is a self still that mm-hmm. lays it down. Mm-hmm. And so it's not about becoming selfless. It's, a, it's about growing into an awareness in which you can be self-giving And other centered, and um, it's just like you know, love your neighbor as yourself, which means there has to be a self to love in order to spill out on your neighbor, Mm -hmm. and um, and so you know, some of that mentality is that there's sort of an annihilation of who you are, rather than no, are you kidding? When you have a a baby born that you love that baby, and you don't know anything about him or her, you know, you just it's like. Uh, but as that baby grows and expands, what are you trying to do? To squash the individuality or the uniqueness of that child? Absolutely not. And, and you're trying to, your desire for your child or your grandchild is that they would become and continue to grow in everything that, it was, that was there, that there is an expansion of that uniqueness, that they mm-hmm. become bigger and yes. fuller and mature and still childlike in so many respects, but you want them to become everything that they were, that they're designed to be. Mm. And, and, and that's an eternal destiny kind of thing. I, I want my child to be fully comfortable inside their own skin and have their own voice, right? That's not the annihilation of self. Mm-hmm. In fact, that leads right into. The, the reality that real love is always based on knowing. Yes. It's, it's, it's not a vacuum. And so to know is, is to climb inside the world of, and begin to see the depth and the height of who that person is, whether that person is God or that person is the person who's right in front of you. And, um, and so th- this, is, <clears throat> this is sort of annihilating this utilitarian perspective uh, being used by God <clears throat> that fuels so much of Christian mission and Christian ministry and all that. It's all I, about
0: I believe in that same community. chapter, you say, uh, rather than God wanting to, quote, use you, he invites you to be a co-creator with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And to part-
1: to participate, the language of participation, mm. which is partly why I love the idea of the Trinity, uh, mm. to me, as a reality. And and because that means that there is this constant movement of relationship. And, you know, when the early church coined the term perichoresis, they were trying to trying to find language that grasped the beauty of, of, of um, multiplicity, uh, diversity within the very being of God that was relational in nature. And so um, perichoresis fundamentally means the mutual interpenetration of one with the other without the loss of personhood. Mm. So in that language, the, the spirit, the Holy Spirit never becomes the father and the father never becomes the son. And yet their relationship is so entangled in the most beautiful way that all you can say is that there is one God. This God is oneness. Mm. And, um, and, and so, yeah, so the invitation is no different than the life that already exists within Trinity, and that is a, a, a mutuality and participation. Mm. So there's a constant sense of, of invitation to participate, and and we're included in that. So it's not like God has an agenda. To, to quote uh, Act 17 again, this is not a God who can be served by human hands as if this God needed anything. You know, this is there is no need that God has that, that you can then be used to perform. Right. And and this is about um in enjoying the life that is good and right and beautiful and, and kind and furious at, at things that are wrong, by the way. Not not just all nicey goosey, but also a flaming fire of fury against anything that keeps the ones loved from being fully human and
0: fully alive. Well, that's a great, that's a great segue segue, into into the next one. God blesses my politics.
1: Oh, (laughs) oh, I was thinking, I was thinking you're going to the judge piece, you know? We'll we'll
0: get to that (laughs) one.
1: (laughs) Okay, Okay. So, but God blesses my politics. Okay. So now we're tampering with civil religion and we're tampering with, I'm a Canadian, so I tend to stay outside of, you know, American political conversations. I, it's a great escape. And mm-hmm. um, and it also is, um, it's, it's a little bit, uh, uh, what's the right word? Weak, weak in a way. Is, mm-hmm. It's like escapist a bit, you know, like it gives me an out in when uh, there are times that I need to engage. So by writing that about that lie, I engage this question, you know. We live in a world full of systems, and systems aren't eternal. In fact, systems don't have any life at all. Um, they require human beings in order to exist. If you take, if you take um, um, all the human beings out of the political system, you don't have anything left. You, you know, systems have less life than rocks. But, but they are empowered by human, choice and desire and intent. And so it's this combination of good and evil. And um, uh, because that's the tree that we chose to eat of rather than life. Um, And so we create systems in order to have a sense of control and politics is a big one Um, to to draw upon my tradition and my history. um, Jesus comes as an anomaly in this, and to me it's it's the incarnation of god this is god come to completely identify with us and assume our humanity um within the very person of jesus and um and so he is he is engaged with the political system but he is outside of it completely he is in it but he is not of it and and because you know the fact that every human being is a child of god politics is is seen in the, like in the book of revelation the epistle you know that john writes that is seen as a as a a compilation of beasts and and monsters who are trying to devour one another you know there's not there's not a political entity on the on this planet that wasn 't created out of the blood of family, you know the the shedding of blood, and um, right from Cain you know all, all the way to today the this blood cries out from the ground, and we we have created out of the ground we then created these systems in order to try to manage control and and uh, on top of that, we create a sacrificial system so that We can get our children to be sacrificed on behalf of the system, which is political in nature. And this is a hard one for my people because, you know, we've sort of identified the kingdom of God with a political system that we're engaged with. And, and that is absolutely contrary to the vision of the, of scripture in the New Testament. And that's like, no. This is the way human beings create control and a sense of security and safety, but it's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in you. It's the inner work. It's the river of life that flows from inside out. And, and yeah, we exist in the, in a world that is full of politics, but, but the question is going to be with any system, how do we be in it, but not of it? Mm. And that's a huge question. And one that, I think uh, the West has not engaged with very well at all. And if anybody wants to go deeply into this conversation, they could read like somebody like Jacques Ellul, E L L U L, who's a French sociologist and theologian who, who really worked on it. But there's a lot of other people who are writing about this topic as well. But no, God doesn't bless your politics. That's, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. It, it comes down to, and especially in the time that, that we're living, I think you really touched on it there at the end. Uh, a Western mindset uh, is very um, dualistic and binary, and we yep. like to have those binaries. We like to have gay, straight, good, bad, Republican, Democrat. And to it's easy to, to Christian, non-Christian, um, Muslim, Christian, it's easy to put people in, into into a category and then – Really fight and believe with all your heart that your your decision or your tribe is the correct one that God blesses. Meanwhile, the reality is, and I think the East has done a much better job at this, the Eastern tradition and thought is that um, there is a, a complex spectrum. Uh, we say it's either or two choices where really it's with the world, human beings uh, every situation is very complex and has many sides to it, like a diamond. It has many, many facets that you can't, um, you can't, you know, you can't just put someone in, in one or one or two boxes and say this is the right one. Um, actually, there may be a, a, a thousand ways to look at a situation rather than just two. And
1: yeah, uh, and w- we create identity through division, not yeah, through love. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And, and
1: that's a, that's a huge problem. Mm. And, and so, uh, you know, and then we find what do we end up trusting? We trust the system mm. and, and then we engage with the system and we're disappointed in it. So we get mad at the system at the same time as we're still putting our hope that somebody will show up that will make the system uh, good enough so that I can then trust it with my security and personal safety and everything else. Mm. And it's like, well, Paul, are you an anarchist? Are you saying that you know you can live in this world without a system? And I'm like, "No, that's not about anarchy. I'm not going to replace an old system with a new one. You know A lot of times all you do is you know create a new layer of, of potential destructiveness. So it's, it's like, okay, yeah, I, I understand. My, I have a son who's a police officer. You know he's a mechanical engineer with an MBA, but he's a Portland police officer. And so it's like I'm not completely disengaged with with the fact that we live in a world where um, how then do you restrain evil, so sure. what's you know now we're getting down to really personal mm-hmm. kinds of yeah choices about uh, about violence and the use of force and restraint and and you know uh, all, all of a sudden, the implications of this are pretty profound, Yes, but it's like. W- is it is it money you trust? Is it economics you trust? Is it is it politics you trust? Is it religion you trust? You know what what transcends all of those things that, that you can actually trust as being consistent, kind, and good, mm.
0: and 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 true. Yes. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap two of them together because they kind of go together. Uh, so uh, let's put you need to get saved. Together, <laughs> together with, uh, not everyone is a child of God.
1: Okay. Well, we we sort of addressed the first yes, one, and that is, did. you know, and and even in the second one, they're all these these lies are all interrelated, and anybody that reads the book will begin to realize, like, oh my gosh, these are just woven into each other. Um,
0: well, let's know, go let's go this direction then. Let's go okay, this direction because okay. you kind of touched on that, but. Maybe this will tie all these together. Sin separates us from God.
1: Okay. Now you're dealing with one of the most fundamental lies, especially in the West. And that is that, that there is, there is an essential separation between us and God. Every religion needs separation. Mm. Every one of them. There has to be some sense of separation for the religious intelligentsia to have, you know, job security. And, um, and there has to be some expert that can tell you how to get unseparated. And it's usually through one form of magic or another, um, because religion also needs magic and uh, sacrifice. Those are the three essential elements of religion is is separation, magic and sacrifice. And and the issue of separation is monumental. Um, we have in my tradition we have kind of an imagination and we're the ones that say sin separates you from god and that usually by sin we mean your behavior choice you know the your lifestyle choices you know it it got down to whether you danced or not you know when i was growing up and uh, and and we we labeled sin as something behavioral where the it is translated or interpreted as missing the mark but the question is what mark is it the mark of perfectionist performance and it's actually not it's the mark of ontology when you miss the mark of who you are created in the image and likeness of the divine then that's what sin is behavior is just an expression of the fact that you don't know who you are mm. well that that simple thing changes everything and then and then we said, well, behavior separates you. Well, you know, here's the problem. The early church would have never, would have never accepted that at all. So in our imagination, it was like God blew creation out like a, I'm using Baxter, my friend Baxter Kruger's um, image that he used for, to help explain this. And he said, it's as if God blew creation out like, uh, like a soap bubble, you know, mm-hmm. that you blow in the wand And that soap bubble then disengages itself from the wand and floats out, not in space, because space is actually created too, but who knows what. And, And so then it screws itself up. You know, Adam makes the choice and takes us down a path. And so God sends Jesus over to the soap bubble to build a bridge back to God. But you still have to punch the ticket, you know. You're still in the soap bubble. You're still separated from God until you do the magic. And in my tradition, the magic is is called the sinner's prayer, or mm-hmm. I don't know, having enough faith, or whatever. And um, and so you know, Jesus gives you. He does everything necessary for the opportunity to be saved, but you don't get actually saved until you do the magic. And so there is still this us and them mentality that is essentially. A mentality of separation. The early church didn't believe that at all. They said all of creation, like the New Testament says, all of creation was created inside the relationship of Trinity. In and specifically inside of Jesus. So so that not anything that has come into being has come into being apart. Right? And nothing can separate you from. If you're in Christ, which is every single human being, since all of creation is in Christ, mm-hmm. all of creation, it's not a soap bubble out there. It's actually created inside of of the Logos, of of Jesus. And so this is why when, mm-hmm. this is the language of assumption that Jesus, the, the unassumed is the unhealed. So Jesus assumes everything about us. And so we are in him. When he dies, this is the language of Corinthians. When he dies, we died. When he rises, we rose. When he ascends, we ascended. And the "we" is inclusive of the entire cosmos. Right. And um, you mean it's not just that,
0: those? You mean it's just not those who said the, the who, sinner's who prayer? Did,
1: who did the magic? Right. No, <laughs> no. And see, this is and yet our ability to choose to agree to to begin to trust to to participate in the process of transformation because God won't heal you apart from your participation, right? That is also the language of being saved. Mm. So, so we need to understand that ontologically this was accomplished in Jesus, but potentially you can keep saying no to it because your ability to say no is absolutely essential to love. Mm. You know, because if your no doesn't matter, your yes doesn't matter either. And 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 so inside of this, no, there is no separation. That is ontologically. You can you can pretend that you're not in Christ, but you are. And 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 you can deny that you are. It's like um, it's it's like having a child who says, well, I'm not your child, you know. I'm going to, I'm going to get legal papers to say that I'm not your child. I don't want to be your child. And it's like, well, ontologically, you're stuck being my child because you're my child. But you can, you can experience a life that has the illusion of separation, alienation, but it's not ontologically true. It's just happening in terms of your, your existential experience because of a lie that you've accepted. You've accepted a lie that you're not my child. But you are my child. And because you believe in that lie, you're going to live as if you're not. Uh, it's the same thing with ontology, right? You, you think you're a piece of shit. Now you, you may be full of shit, but you're not a piece of shit. Mm. You know, it's the same kind of mentality. And it's like, no, there is no separation. You're, you're going to be stuck with this divine love at, surrounding you for all of your existence. Mm. eternal existence mm. nothing can separate you from the love of god uh, for any who are in christ well who's that well all Everybody. creation is that's right. right not then everything and this is uh somebody wants a an ad one of my people listening to this says well that can't be look at colossians one sixteen and 17 i mean really look at it because it's saying exactly this And since there is no separation, you cannot get away from the love of God. And it has a list of Romans about what are the things that cannot separate you from the love of God? Anything present, anything future, not anything in life and not death. Death can't separate you and not any created thing, not principalities and powers, not systems, right? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so this love is the reality in which you live and move and have your being, whether you acknowledge it or not. That's right. And, and by your powerful ability to say no to love, you can experience a life of tragedy, uh, of self-willful destructiveness in which you hurt and harm not only yourself, but all kinds of other people, mm. all because you have no clue. That you are loved, that you are embraced, that you are relentlessly pursued, that you can't escape this love, but you deny it. And that's our participation. Now work out your salvation. That's right. right? He did it once for all, Hebrews. Now work it out. Your participation is essential to this process. And it's a long-term process. This is not, death is not going to fix everything. Death was never Death doesn't even exist apart from life. You know, life can exist apart from death, but death has no ontological existence. Mm. And and that's another one of those lies that I have in there, like death is bigger than life, you know.
0: Those that's have, a lie. Yeah. And those people that are listening to this, I know they're having lots of uh questions. And I I think it leads to I'm gonna wrap two more together because I think they go together because exactly. I'm I'm leading all of your all of your um Things that you're saying, hopefully to to a conclusion that will wrap up in a few minutes. But one of them is, um, well, two of them is God. The cross was God's idea, and God requires child sacrifice. Talk to me Whoa, about yeah. That. Those
1: okay. So the cross is a iconic symbol of of man, human beings' intention to destroy life. Right. It was the cross was if God is good, God doesn't build crosses. The, the, the intent of a cross is to keep someone in as much pain as long as possible and then to extract by force their their life essence, which is their breath. Right? It's a it's a torture device that is designed to kill you through um, suffocation mm. and um, and the extraction of your breath. Which is your spirit in terms of the language of of scripture, and um so if you make God the author of this kind of evil, then you we have nowhere to run to we have We have a God who is not whole, a God who is good, and yet the way of God's being becomes monstrous and um, so so who originates the cross? Well, we do uh, as human beings, and this is you know. This is all throughout Scripture. We killed him. God the Father didn't kill his son. You know, God doesn't use death to accomplish good. He can climb inside of death and grow things in it that are living. But that's redemptive genius. That's not origin and causal. And um, so the cross isn't, it is not God's idea. We brought that to the table. But this is a God who also by nature submits. So how does God destroy this kind of destructiveness that humanity brings to the table? Well, he submits to it. He climbs onto it. He allows us to kill life himself. And by submitting to it, he destroys its power. And by rising from the dead, he destroys the power or the fear of death. And then he transforms this iconic symbol of destructiveness into a precious icon that is so precious to many of us that we wear it on our rings or on our jewelry. And, and it's like, that's redemptive genius, to take mm-hmm. something that is so devastating from that we brought to the table and by submitting to it, transform it into something that is precious and beautiful. That's the story of my own personal life, you know? <laughs> that, that I brought a lot of damage to the table and God, has, God climbed into the middle of that submitted to it by living in me in the midst of it all and then beginning slowly and incrementally to build something beautiful so that when people look at me, they just don't see the devastation. Mm. They see the beauty that has emerged yeah. and that's, that's the cross. So yeah.
0: But in, so, but in uh, Christian theology though, uh, some would push back and modern,
1: say modern evangelical yeah,
0: modern evangelical theology, they would say, Yeah, but starting from um, the beginning of the Old Testament, sacrifice for sin was God's system, and the cross was that system, was that tool whereby Jesus became the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He was the sacrifice for sin that God needed.
1: Sure, sure. although, if you listen to the prophets at all, you know that God hates sacrifice. Right, he doesn't require it. (laughs) No, no, hate it, actually, and, and Daniel's prophecy that the, the Messiah, when he came, would one day put an end to it. So why the sacrificial system? It's because it's, human, it's the human language. It's the language of our humanity. And it's, um, when, when God chooses, has to choose someone through which to enter into our experience. So it starts with Abraham. When God comes to Abraham and says, sacrifice your child, And Abraham doesn't seem to like even bat an eye about it. It's like, okay, why? Why does one, God tell Abraham to do this? And two, why does Abraham do it without any kind of an issue? Well, that's because the whole planet, every religious system on the planet, whether you went to the Aztecs and the Incans in South America, or you will go to the Egyptian gods or Odin and Thor up in the north uh, gods, or, you know, the Baal and Marduk and they were all sacrificial system gods. Mm-hmm. everybody spoke the same language as far as religious sacrifice, and the highest form of sacrifice was the sacrifice of a child. Mm. I mean, even today, without talking about you know the military system as being a system of child sacrifice, but even today, if you go to we have a, a granddaughter adopted from Uganda and, and in Uganda for 80 bucks us you can. You can have a child abducted, and the witch doctor will, mm. will will sacrifice that child and put body parts into the corner of new construction and stuff. So, I mean, that's today. So this underlying system of sacrifice, the ability to sacrifice a child as the perfect sacrifice, was there, embedded all the way from the beginning. A twisted form of the promise that Eve would have a child that would crush the accusation. And um, And so there's the sacrificial system. So Abraham, that's his religious language. So what does God do? Well, like any missionary, God speaks the language of the people that they are trying to communicate with. So he enters into Abraham's world and he says, all right, you speak sacrifice. I'll speak sacrifice. Sacrifice your child. And, And then when God, you know, confronts Abraham as Abraham's bringing the knife down, God says, stop. And says, look, and this is when Abraham learned, because Abraham is slowly unwinding the darkness of his religious convictions to begin to grasp the truthfulness of the nature and character of God. This is when Abraham learned that God was Jehovah Jireh, a new name for God, which is the God who will provide himself. So what you have in that story is not, oh, child sacrifice is a good thing. It's actually the opposite. Abraham, get this straight. I don't do child sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And if you need a sacrifice, I will sacrifice myself. I will give myself. I will provide myself so that I then take on this darkness and destroy the need for sacrifice. This is not legitimate, but it's such a deep thing inside the brokenness of humanity that we need a scapegoat. We need, and it's like, all right, I'm going to climb into your world, speak your language, and then destroy your religious darkness from the inside. Mm. And frankly, you know, people talk a lot about like, well, can't you find God in every religion? Well, of course, because God is in every religion trying to destroy it mm. so that we move into the reality of relationship. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised that you can find God elements of goodness and kindness and reality within every religious construct but God's not a religious being at all. That's right. And so this is a god who cares about the human being and the human being who's lost in their religious convictions god is going to climb into their world and begin to through through confrontation, exposure and kindness and gentleness and love depending on where that person's at going to begin to destroy the necessity of religious commitment and ideology uh, that has substituted itself for authentic, authentic vulnerability trusting relationship
0: mm. that's that is so good and it brings us kind of full circle to the last uh, lie that's on that's on your in your book lies that we believe about god and uh, the one that I want to just uh, end this with, and that is, hell is eternal separation from God.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. You know, supposedly that hell is supposed to be sort of an equivalent punishment for your behavioral uh, inadequacy, you know? And it's like, well, you did—but that doesn't even make any sense. Uh, even in, in our justice system that is based on Moses, Um, it's still supposed to be an eye for an eye and justice is supposed to be blind and, and all of that. But the idea is that fairness is that the punishment is somehow equivalent to the amount of, of damage that you've done. Or, or you
0: rejected that sacrifice supposedly.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's like, uh, so, you know, um, but, I mean, we could have a long conversation about it. If anybody wants a great book about hell, uh, get Brad Jurzak's book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, again, we, we start with separation, as if we're spun out from God, therefore hell is a place that's spun out from God, rather than no. And, and in that chapter, I go like, look, your choice is this. Either hell is created or it's uncreated, whatever your perception of hell is. And I, I much prefer the the line, you know, religious people believe in hell, but spiritual people have been there. And um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh, I do too, because uh, it's my experience, yes. you know. And um, and it's like, so if it's a created thing, then it cannot separate you from the love of God. So it's not separation. If it's an uncreated thing, then it is God. It's the very presence of God. And. And because God is the only uncreated. Uh, so it's like, all right. And I, what I'm trying to do is undermine the commitment of my own people to eternal conscious torment. Mm. Um, rather, I, um, Brad uh, Jerzak just came out with a great article. And if you want to find resources for any of these conversations, you can go on WM Paul Young. Uh, dot com which is just a simple website but on it has a resource page and in it is some of these um articles and things that will that will be helpful to you as well and and in that conversation brad goes like you know uh, and kenneth tanner and others it's god is hell and god is heaven you know it's not about destination it's about a relationship to love um because love is not going to stand, this is George MacDonald. love will not stand idly by, while well, anything that is not of love's kind remains in you. This is a God who is a consuming fire. And that fire is opposed to anything in you that is not of love's kind. Mm. So rather than a place of punishment uh, that is eternal and, and how you fit mental illness into that or people who've never heard or children or unborn babies, I, you know, that's a whole another horrible part of the conversation. And, um, and frankly, I, I only know of two women who actually believe in hell the way that my people teach it. We teach it ideologically, but we have to come up with all kinds of scrambling ways to try to to accommodate any sense of goodness in God if we hold on to eternal conscious torment. Mm. And um, these two women both killed their children before they reached what my people would call the age of accountability, which they made up because they couldn't just send little children to eternal conscious torment, so they came mm. up with the age of 12, you know. And so these two women, you know, the one in Florida, her, her um, defense was it was an act of love. I mean, she would rather exchange her life and her e- eternal destiny for the life of her three children by killing them before they reach the, the age where their choice could send them to eternal mm. conscious torment. Wow. Now, within that frame of reference, she's absolutely right. But you, you go, that can't be right. It's absolutely monstrous. Well, and it is because the underlying belief is wrong. So rather, you know, rather than a God who is the judge in a courtroom, which we inherited in the West, thanks to Calvin, who's a lawyer, Luther, who's a lawyer, Augustine, who's a lawyer, rather than a judge who's in a courtroom, the early church had a judge who was the great physician. Mm. So, of course, you want the judge who's the great physician to judge you. You go to a doctor for the doctor to judge you, to tell you why you're sick and why you're broken. And, what, and then prescribe, that's the punishment, is the prescription, or to say, look, we're going to have to cut you open and take this tumor out because it's killing you. Mm. That's punishment. But the whole intention of that judge is to move you in the direction of healing. The whole intention of a judge in a courtroom situation is to punish you, you know, and for, us, for my people, it's like, and the big punishment is eternal conscious torment. So it's an ongoing, everlasting punishment. Mm. And it's like, how? what's the wholeness of that? And, and that's why I much prefer the early church model and vision of God who is the judge, who is the great physician, rather than God who, that we've inherited in the West, God who is a judge who's in a courtroom. Mm. And, um, and so yeah, so the implications of that are, are huge. But no, hell's not separation if you want to hold on to your crap and and love constantly reminds you about the truth of who you are and that that there is a goodness and a kindness and a beauty that you are resisting that conflict will be hell to you yes. or having to face what you've done and how you've hurt people having to actually own it mm-hmm. that's hell mm-hmm. you know having to having to deal with the losses that you've inflicted on other people the the lies that you've told and and work out the relational dynamics of all that and come to a place of forgiveness and reconciliation, that journey is a fiery fury. It is a furnace, And but the intention is to burn out of you everything that is not real, not living, not good, all the dross so that it can come to the surface and be scraped away. That's That fire is love, mm-hmm. and that God is consuming fire.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. What, as we wrap up, what are one or two things that uh, pieces of advice, uh, Paul, that you would give someone who is unraveling some of this stuff, who's gone through some yeah. things, or who may even be listening to this podcast and say, he's, uh, I, if he's right, what then do I do now with my whole? structure and my construct what are a couple of pieces of of advice would you give to someone who's going through that
1: yeah one is relax and you know we need all kinds of metaphors for this process for some of us it's a violent process it's like we need the bulldozer to come in and just kind of wipe out the place and and so that we can build from scratch for some of us it's like it's like the removal of layers of paint that have covered up the masterpiece or it's Mm. like uh, the taking out the stain in the wedding dress, you know, and um, those metaphors are especially appropriate to people whose life has really hurt. God is not going to come in and tear you through your prison bars, even for your own good. This is a God who will climb into your cell with you, uh, the cell that you may have called home and and love you to the place where you 're willing to to leave your survival skills and Safety mechanisms and and begin to trust. Mm. So you know the metaphors are all over the place. So one thing is that your experience may not be cataclysmic, but it might be. You know, some of us we have to get caught. <laughs> you know, sure. we're just we we just don't have enough health to finally admit that we need help. And um, so one is it's like okay, it, if God is good, then you can also trust God with the process. Mm. And, and, and you don't have to know everything, but you are absolutely free to question everything. Questioning is a good thing. You know, I, mm. I tell people all the time, why are you upset with atheism? It's halfway to Jesus from religion, yes. you know, <laughs> and, and every real move toward truth is a, is a denial of what you once believed, which is a form of atheism. It's like, I don't think that God exists anymore. And that's Mm -hmm. a scary thing. And you're also uh, understand that you're moving into the mystery of relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's scary because you don't keep control ideology, doctrine, categorization, those are all control things. Mm. Institutional systems, they're all control. But we're talking about an actual relationship that there's nothing deeper about the nature of God than relationship, that love is relationally centered. And so this is a God. Who, who loves you? And you know what? At the core of our heart, we have a longing for this. Yes. You know, every addiction is to try to find a finite way to meet an infinite longing, mm. you know, and, and so there is a, there is a powerful apologetic that is a defense of this from within your own heart. What do you actually believe in? Mm. What do you long for? Truth And good. I, I don't think anybody longs to be a liar, you know, or to betray people or it's like, no, there's something more fundamental. And, um, and, and I'm going like, so relax, you know, take this one day at a time, mm. let it unravel in the way that it unfolds. And then if it is not increasing your capacity to love, drop it you know or if it becomes really complex drop it it has to work for children and it has to work for people under the coercion of first century slavery that there there was a capacity for goodness and truth and it doesn't mean we don't enter into conflict with the systems and and the things that are wrong and with the lies that exist in our own heart we do and and that's work but 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 at the core of it, look for what it's producing. Is is your doctrine, is your religious ideology producing freedom in your life? Because um, um, there is no fear in love. So is your system producing fear or shame? Um, guilt is one thing. That's, you know, you've done something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. Shame doesn't have a place. Guilt does, but... But that's because we have to work it out. Mm. And uh, but in terms of what is what is happening, and that doesn't mean you don't go through turmoil when suddenly the things you thought were certain they start to slip and slide. You know that that's a scary place. But trust is scary. Trust is trust is risky. And you're either going to trust the goodness and the reality of a God who loves, or you're going to go back to systems because it is. You're going to find a way to control if right. you can't trust. That's right. And that's the only, only two responses to fear there are, mm. is control or trust. And, and you're not going to trust a God that you don't believe is good. So there's got to be some really fundamental, simple things that are true for children that are also going to be true for you in terms of this journey.
0: Mm. That's so good. Well, thank you so much. Paul, where can people find you? You mentioned your website. It's it's uh W M what is it Paul PaulYoung.com. W M Paul Young. Yeah. Uh what are yeah, you working the w- on M- these days? Yeah, the WM is just for William.
1: I'm one of four generations of Williams, none of who go by their first name. And <laughs> and uh, so uh W M Paul Young and look for a resource page. It'll have an itinerary page that you know. I'm, I've yet to put it up for 2020. There's links to your up.
0: social media there. Do you do any social media?
1: Oh, yeah, I do some, but, you know, I'm so bad at it, but <laughs> I do do some. So, yes, there are links to Instagram and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Um, working on three book projects right now, one fiction, two nonfiction, and, um, and a bunch of other peripherals. Any, anything so. that
0: you can share uh, on any of those? Oh.
1: Yeah. So one of them is The Art of Living in One Day's Grace, which mm. is – the only way that I know how to live this stuff out is just by staying inside of one day's grace stopping with expectations when you learn to live without expectations everything becomes a gift um, stop making decisions based on per- perceived outcomes you know and um, and and begin to learn inside of presence that is uh, deal with the world as it really is in front of you not not imagine future tripping imaginations that are based in fear. So that's one of the books. The other one is on ontology that we began this whole conversation mm-hmm. with and the implications of that, which is that's turning into a really amazing, fun trip. And the, and the fiction one is actually, I'm working on a sequel for The Shack. And oh, wow. there are guys, yeah, which I thought I'd never write, but I become friends with a bunch of guys on death row in Tennessee and,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they're, and they're helping me create wow. a, storyline arc. Yeah. So that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Well, that's so exciting. We'll be uh, keeping our eyes open for that. And so, Paul, thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule. I want to personally thank you for being uh, available, being brave, uh, being honest. I know that some of these uh, conclusions and, and life issues that you've come to and beliefs um, are not always popular uh, in your in in certain circles. So thank you for being brave because it gives us and many of us the courage to do the same. So uh, oh,
1: you're you're so welcome. I'm so honored. It's always a two way street. I appreciate the opportunity very very much. So okay. thank you.
0: Okay, Paul. We'll be uh, say, say, we'll
1: hi, say hi to all my friends in Nashville and
0: Franklin. Yeah, we will for sure. And we'll be looking out for all your, your books and, and, and who knows, maybe there's another movie coming down the pike one day.
1: Who knows? (laughs) I mean, I could be dead by tomorrow. That's the point of living in today's
0: One day at a time.
1: Enjoy the season of grateful hearts.
0: Thank you. Talk to you soon, Paul. You bet. Thank you. Bye-bye.